Okay. So we're talking about nonlinear optics. All right, we're going to continue this conversation today. And we started uh, two lectures ago talking about the general principles that govern or that produce nonlinear optics. Um, last time we talked about phase matching as one of the requirements for nonlinear optics. It's not the only requirement. Um, usually it's sort of the one that involves the most work in calculation. Um, the other requirement is that you have a nonlinear material, a material that has a non-zero nonlinear optic tensor. But that's usually taken care of when you order your crystal. And you call up the manufacturer, you say, I need a crystal that has some nonlinear optic coefficient. They give you a list of, of available crystals. You pick one that looks suitable. And once you have it, then you have to do the phase matching. Um, so. What do you mean nonlinear crystal? You mean the orthogonal material is non-zero? No. What do you mean? I mean a material who ha that has a non-zero electro-optic tensor, or elements to the electro-optic tensor that are non-zero. An electro-optic crystal, crystal that supports the electro-optic effect. And if you have that, you will also support nonlinear interactions. Um, most materials, unless there's a symmetry consideration that like it's a centrosymmetric crystal where it's all its elements are zero, you will have some nonlinearity. It's just a matter of finding the ones that have the largest nonlinear coefficients. Um, so a number of questions in the past week uh, have come up where I said, well, we'll get to the math later, and once we have the math, then we can explore that in a little more detail. So today we're going to do the math. And so we will start with Maxwell's equations. Right? And uh, we have the... See, curl of magnetic field, that's uh, Ampere's law. Curl of electric field, Faraday's law. Um, and I've written these in a more general term where we have some free current, J. So J is the current density. And then we have our familiar electric displacement, magnetic field, electric field. I actually only put the current density in because I was following derivation in Yari Vigny. I have no idea, looking back, why all of a sudden in this particular chapter they included the current density. But uh, it turns out that you know, we'll, show, we'll show what effect that current density has, and then we'll immediately neglect it and say, let's assume that it doesn't exist. OK, so I've explicitly written now the uh, electric displacement as a component from the electric field and a component from the polarization of the material. That's by definition, what the electric displacement is. And we argued that the polarization has a term which is linear in the electric field and potentially these nonlinear terms. And that depends on the material, whether or not it will have nonlinear terms. The magnitude of those nonlinear terms, or at least the magnitude of the first nonlinear term, the, the second order, the quadratic term, looks like some coefficient times an electric field squared, so written in tensor notation. Um, this polarization vector depends on the polarization of these two vectors. And so the ith component of that polarization vector depends on the 
jth and kth polarization components of the two electric fields that are combining. And so they're related through a 3 by 3 by 3 tensor, dijk. So this tensor is what we call the nonlinear optic tensor. And these elements, there has to be a non-zero element in that tensor in order to have any nonlinear polarization come into play. So that's a material property. Um, in any event, if we plug this polarization in there, then uh, the epsilon naught E plus epsilon naught chi E Epsilon naught plus epsilon naught chi is just epsilon. It's, it's the permittivity of the material. And so we have the epsilon there. And then this nonlinear term, we just call the nonlinear polarization. And we keep it separate. Um, the charge, or the, the current density, current is just charges moving. They're driven by electric fields. That's what accelerates them. So the density of free charges times the applied electric field gives us the, the current density. So sigma is the charge density in the material, alternatively known as the conductivity of the material. It's 1 over the resistivity. And then E is the field that drives that, that charge. So we can now. Combine these into an, a wave equation using the, the usual uh, rules of taking the curl of both sides. And when we do that, we get terms from the usual wave equation where we don't have any nonlinear terms, we don't have any conductivity. Uh, we have this term left over, which came from the conductivity. And we have this term left over, which comes from the nonlinear component. So this is an expression that has to be true for every polarization component of the electric field. So we can suggest three possible solutions, one for each polarization component. Those are our trial solutions. And just like we did for the regular wave equation when we didn't have nonlinearities, we try sinusoidal solutions. And here, instead of just writing them as phasors, I've explicitly included uh, the phasor and its complex conjugate to denote that our electric field that we're trying as a solution is a function of position and time. I'm going to assume that the wave is propagating along z here. So it's a function of z and time. And at frequency 1, I have a sinusoidal oscillation at frequency 1, propagating along z. And if I add this to its complex conjugate, I'm going to get a cosine, cosine of omega 1t minus k1z. Okay, so uh, why bother including the complex conjugate? We haven't up until now. The reason comes from the fact that this nonlinear term depends on the product of fields. And if you remember way back when we started with phasers, we said you can do a lot of things with phasers, but you can't multiply two phasers together and get something that represents the function you get when you multiply the two functions together. 
So you just need to be careful to avoid using phasor notation blindly when you have phasors being multiplied together. Okay, so I'm still only going to write one phasor, and I'll just denote its complex conjugate by CC, just to save on the, the, the writing. Um, I think there's a one point we'll have to multiply out, and uh, we'll do that when we get to it. Now, I'm interested in three-wave interaction. We've discussed that sort of phenomenologically. So I want to consider, potentially, three different frequency waves as solutions. I mean, each of these solutions will satisfy that expression, or we can require each of those solutions satisfy that expression. And if we're dealing with a uh, three-wave interaction, we can require omega-3 equal omega-1 plus omega-2. That was our conservation of energy that we expect to exist for a three-wave interaction. And remember, by definition, omega-1 is the lowest frequency, omega-3 is the highest frequency. So I, I think I'm then, oh, here it is. I, J, and K represent the X, Y, and Z components. Well, it can't be Z, right? And it can't be Z because it's propagating along Z. Right. So just the X or Y directions. Um, but you can have any combination of X and Y. So we're not doing um, collinear anymore. We are doing collinear. So they're all propagating along Z. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. But each one of these expressions uh, could be generalized to three different expressions. One for the x component, one for the y, one for the z, and I've just used the uh, ijk notation to compact them all into a single expression. Okay, or, I mean, I could just put a vector over each of these e's instead of having the subscripts. Okay, so. Um, in the wave equation, the left-hand side looks like del squared of E. So if we take our functional form of E and we differentiate it twice, um, the first thing you might want to notice is that I've written the amplitude as a function of Z. So why have I done that? This is not just a plane wave propagating along Z. It's a wave whose amplitude can change as it propagates along Z. Why have I done that? Yeah, I expect there to be coupling between these, so this is the uh, standard method of using uh, coupled mode analysis. I've assumed that this field can couple to this other field and transfer power and amplitude over to the other field, so this should be able to vary. But it's a slow variation, slow relative to the wavelength of the wave or the period, slow being time, slow relative to the period of the wave. Um, and so that slow constraint will come into play when I take the second derivative. I have the second spatial derivative of uh, one function of z, one function of z times another function of z. So I have to use the chain rule. And because it's the second derivative, I have to use a chain rule twice. So I get, every time I take the derivative, I get an ik coming out. So when I take the derivative of the first term twice, I'm going to get a k squared. The derivative of the last term twice is going to be uh, second derivative. I'm sorry. The second derivative of the last term gives me a k squared. The second derivative of the first term is negligibly small. 
because it's the second derivative of the uh, change in the envelope, the, the amplitude. And then the cross terms give me the uh, one term of k coming out from the exponential and one derivative of the amplitude. And because there's two cross terms, add two of those. Okay, so this term is large compared to this second order term, that's why I neglect it. Okay, so um, I can do the same thing for the complex conjugates and I get the complex conjugate of that expression. Okay, so I can write the wave, wave equation like this. I just calculated the left-hand side. Okay, so that's over here. On the right-hand side, I've got um, three terms. Right, the first one was a first derivative in time, the next one is a second derivative, and the third one is my nonlinear term. So the first derivative in time gives me one factor of omega 1, or omega coming out. The second derivative gives me an omega squared coming out. And then the nonlinear part, I haven't done anything with yet. Right here? Two I get an I, yeah, I get two i's coming out, uh, but it started as negative. Let me see. I go back to the expression. Actually, it's not negative. And I've got e to the i omega. I've written this as e to the i omega. So one. So the signs on both of these then would seem to be wrong. Either the signs on these are wrong or sorry. Yep, okay, there it is. And so that's going away. Thank you. Okay, so um, what I can say is that this term looks like omega squared over c squared. What is omega squared over c squared? K squared. K squared. And over here, I've got k squared. Right, so this term and this term are the same. They cancel. There's a one-half here. There's a one-half there. Okay. Um, then that lets me solve for the rate of change of this field. So I'll just divide by ik1 and <coughs> divide by uh, this exponent, exponent as well. And so Here's what I get when I solve for the rate of change. Right. Dividing by k, I have omega over k. O omega over k is c. 1 over square root of, well, omega over k, I should say, is um, v, the phase velocity. And 
because this is k in the material. Right, there's no n okay. in that. Okay, so, uh, so it's v, which is 1 over square root of mu naught epsilon 1. And so that times mu naught gives me square root of mu naught over epsilon 1. Uh, this term went away. And now I need to do some work on this term here in order to show how I get that. So the nonlinear polarization I know is defined by this expression. Ej and Ek are each can be written like this. Um, 1 half e to the i um, omega j t minus kjz. And I'm going to explicitly write out the complex conjugate now. This is the only place where I need to actually address this complex conjugate. Yeah, minus. So that's Ej. Ek has the same form. K sub k. And I still need the amplitudes, so I'm calling them uh, what am I calling them? E J and E J star E K. E k star. Okay, so now when I multiply these through, I'm going to have components at two different frequencies. So when I take this and I multiply it by this, what I will get is first off, let me factor out my my uh, numerical factors. I'm going to have an ej ek times e to the i omega j plus omega k times t minus kj minus uh, plus kkz. Positive omega j, positive omega k. <coughs> Negative kj, negative kz. Yeah. And likewise, when I multiply through this term and this term, these are the complex conjugates of this. So I'm going to get the uh, similar form, but the complex conjugate. 
right? And that is a sinusoidal wave at the sum frequency. Then we've also got the cross terms. So when I take this and multiply it by this, that's going to give me an ej times an ek star, and then an e to the i plus omega j minus omega k. And then minus kj minus minus kz. So thank you. Minus minus uh, k should be a kk. Z. And then likewise, when I do the uh, other two terms here, I'm going to get the complex conjugate of that expression. So ej star times ek times e to the minus i omega j minus omega k t minus kj minus kk z. Okay, um, right, so where does that leave us? What I'm solving for, all the other terms, all the other terms are oscillating at omega 1. This term is oscillating at the sum frequency. This term is oscillating at the difference frequency of these two fields, which would be omega 2 and omega 3. Okay, for a three-wave interaction, if I've got, uh, well, if I've got this, omega 1 plus omega 2 equals omega 3, then the only combination of frequencies that will give me an amplitude that's oscillating at similar frequencies as to what all these other terms are oscillating at, is ones where um, omega j plus omega k has to be about equal to omega 1, or omega j minus omega k has to be about equal to omega 1. So yes. Minus omega two, yes, so there we go. j equals 3, k equals 2 satisfies that. Okay, so if this condition is met, if I choose my three frequencies such that uh, energy is conserved when two photons of the lower frequency get converted to one of the higher frequency, then this term in red is oscillating at omega 1. And because it's oscillating at omega 1 and all these other terms are also oscillating at omega 1, it will always be in phase with those others and can contribute to that phase change. So what I want, uh, I want one of these two conditions to be met. 
and I have this constraint. Okay, so if I have those two constraints, then I can rearrange this so that it's in the form of these constraints. Um, and I either have, there's, there's no solution that will give me this constraint and this constraint. Right? Because if I rearrange this, this is omega 1 is omega 3 minus omega 2. And that doesn't work at the plus sign. But if I rearrange this to get omega 1 on the left, this looks like omega 1 equals omega 3 minus omega 2, which has the same form as this constraint if j is 3 and k is 2. OK, so uh, this term in red is oscillating at the same rate as all the other terms in this differential equation. But the term in blue is going to oscillate at a very different frequency. For second harmonic generation, this would be twice the frequency. Um, three times? Maybe j plus m. Omega 1 does equal omega 2 for second harmonic. Um, so omega j, this is 2 omega plus, yeah, so that would be, you're right, would be 3 times. Um, so this is, anyhow, if this is the same frequency as all the other terms, then this one is a very different frequency. It's off by 2 omega k. Yeah. And what that means is it's going in and out of phase every period. And so when you average over any reasonable time frame, the contribution from this term will average out. <coughs> So mathematically, you could multiply both sides by uh, e to the minus i omega 1t and integrate uh, for t much larger than a period. And you would sort of mathematically reproduce what we said, is that terms that don't have the same, uh, same oscillation frequency would just average out. So the blue one would? The blue one would average out. OK, because okay. I thought you pointed to p. p still has red, right? This P? Yeah. Well, this P is what I calculated here. It's got the red and the blue. The blue one doesn't contribute in this expression. OK, so the red one is written here. Now, because I've already done my multiplication of phasers, now I can write this red term. This is just a function that has this amplitude, this phase. And I'll write it as a phaser. So here's the amplitude. And here's the phase. Uh, what do you mean 3j? Uh, good question. Um, the amplitude of field 3. OK, so I'm using a slight, sorry, I'm using a different notation on the board and in the notes. In the notes, Omega 1, 2, and 3 are the frequencies, and i, j, and k are the polarization components. Okay. And then what I did up here was called j and k the frequencies. OK, so uh, when you said the uh, polarization components, so i is the polarization of omega 1, j is the polarization of omega 2, and k is the polarization of omega 3. Is that right? Yes. Now that said, uh, you know, omega-3 could be arbitrarily polarized, and then you just have two different amplitudes. <coughs> and if it's polarized at 45 degrees, you have a component with k equals 1, you have a component with k equals 2 that are the same magnitude. Okay. 
So with sum over IJ, J and K? We sum over repeated indices. This term right here, we sum over J and K. Right. OK, so uh, what I've done when I solved for this uh, rate of change of field 1 is I divided by IK and I divided by this phasor. So dividing by this phasor means I'm multiplying both sides by plus K1Z, e to the plus I K1Z. So that's where this k1 comes from. And when I also multiply by e to the minus i omega 1, then uh, omega 1 is equal to omega 3 minus omega 2. So the time dependence cancels out. Okay, So this is my expression for the rate of change of field 1. I can repeat the process for field two and three and get similar expressions. And now I have differential equations that tell me how the fields will evolve as they go through my crystal. Okay, so we can. As a yeah, there is, and let me see if I can. thought I had something in the notes, but I guess not. Um, we have it I think if you just go through the permutations, this term if you go from replace 1 with 2, then um, let's see, why did I do it that way? You don't have to do it that way. You could take the complex conjugate of both sides. right? You'd have the opposite sign here for that i. So I want to say I did it so that these all had the same form on the right, although I could have just reversed those. I don't know. I'd have to think about it a little more. Um. Uh, the, okay. So the other thing is we completely ignored the convex conjugate. And I don't know if we were justified in doing that. Um, the com if, if this relationship holds, then the complex conjugate of this relationship holds as well. Right, just take the complex conjugate of both sides. And then add this and its complex conjugate together, and you get that. We do this all the time. We do this all the time when we do this phasor notation, where we've already neglected the complex conjugate. You just don't realize it because that, that, that term doesn't, doesn't show up. So.
No, the complex no, conjugate of that equation is the same thing. No, the, this is the complex conjugate of that. He only took one term in red up there. He took the, the 3j 2k star, which would be, let's see, um, I don't know if this is the first or the second because of the mixing of J's and K's. Yeah. But anyway, he only took either the first term in red or the second term in red. Oh. And so the other one is the complex conjugate of oh, no, the first one. one. So basically, he was sort of doing first term, first term, and first term on the board and deriving an equation. And if instead he had taken complex conjugate, complex conjugate, and complex conjugate on the board, he would have gotten a Conjugate of that equation. Okay, that seems plausible for now. <laughs> <laughs> That's not sure, but still seems a little hand wavy, but seems seems plausible. Okay, okay. Well, sorry, I have one other thing. I get omega 1 plus omega 2, or omega j plus omega k is some frequency, some difference, whatever. But what is k3 minus k2? The coefficient is z? Yeah, what is that? Okay, so that is. So k times z is the phase accumulated traveling through a distant z. So this is the difference in phase accumulated between the two waves. Okay, so this is going to be related to phase matching. Right? And when we multiply through by e to the minus i, or it's e to the i k1z, then we get this expression in the exponent. And what we're getting at is that this expression, this expression is our phase matching condition. Right? If so, if we're phase matched, this expression will be zero. If it's not, this term is going to drift as you go along in z from positive to negative and back, and therefore you're going to be building up, decreasing, increasing, decreasing the field. Um, okay, so what are these different terms? mean. Um, this term with a sigma in it, if you have free charges, what does that do? It tells me that the rate of change is proportional to the field. Not, there's no i in here. The rate of change is proportional to the field. That's an exponential growth or decay. And in this case, it's got a negative sign, so it's a decay. That's exponential decay. That's an absorbing material. That's why we've been assuming sigma is zero or the free current is zero, because we generally don't work with absorbing materials if we're trying to pass the light through them and do interesting things. So if our material is a dielectric, no free charge, that term's zero. So we'll now ne neglect that. Um, so the other term does exactly what I just said. It contributes then to the change in this field. And if this argument is not zero, then as you propagate along the crystal, the sign of this term will change, and you will not be able to continually build up field. At some point in the crystal, you'll start to reduce the field. The distance over which it takes before you stop building up field is called the coherence length. It's the length over which these three waves are in phase. OK, so let's consider the case of second harmonic generation now. Okay, so that means K1 and K2 are the same. K3 is twice that. Uh, likewise, omega 3 is twice omega 1 and omega 2. And if there's no dispersion, 
then these three terms, the k3 has the magnitude of k1 plus k2. So delta k is 0. So no dispersion means we have phase matching automatically. Um, that means this term here, which we call delta k, goes to 1. And we can have, and I've now written it for field 3, because field 3 is the one, the, the second harmonic field. That can build up indefinitely as you know, integrate, you know, multiply both sides by dz, integrate, and we have the amplitude of field 3 is linear in z. Right, we have a constant slope. Uh, let's be more general, though, and assume that this delta k is not necessarily 0. So now let's multiply both sides by dz and integrate. On the left-hand side, we just get the electric field for frequency 3. And we'll assume we start at 0 and we propagate to a distance l. Then on the right side, this is the only term that depends on z. The rest of this is constant in z. So that stays the same. When we integrate e to the something times z, we have a 1 over something coming out. So we have a 1 over i delta k. And then we still have our e to the i delta kz, which we evaluate at the limits. So at l we evaluate it, and at 0 we evaluate it. And now, you may start to recognize this functional form right there. We can do a little bit more manipulation to make it more recognizable. We can factor out the average phase between these two components. Remember, this is a phase, a uh, unit amplitude phasor with phase delta KL. This is a unit amplitude phasor with phase 0. So the average phase is delta KL over 2. So we factor that out, then this term looks like e to the plus i delta KL over 2. This term looks like e to the minus i delta L k over 2. And yeah, e to the something minus e to the minus something over 2i gives you sine. Right, so we divide by 2, we multiply by 2, and we call this sine, delta KL over 2. And now we have sine of something over the something. We've seen that before. That's our sink function. So we just need to put an L over 2 here to make it a sink and multiply this by L over 2. Um, and this is the electric field. So if we want to talk about the intensity, the intensity is proportional to the field squared, the amplitude of the field squared. The constant of proportionality is just written there for completeness. Um, and so when we take this field squared, all the terms in it get squared, including this one. And that now looks like sink squared. So if we investigate this sink squared term, and we look at how it affects the intensity of the second harmonic field that's being built up, um, we don't have that there. If delta k is 0, that's not there. And the intensity is proportional to L squared. The field is proportional to L. It's building up linearly as you propagate through the crystal. The intensity goes as a field squared, so it's proportional to L squared. Uh, if this is not 0, we can plot what sinc squared looks like. So it looks like this. So 
So it's unit magnitude at delta k equals 0. As we deviate away from that, you know, it decays rapidly and oscillates. So the intensity of our second harmonic wave is proportional to L squared and times the sinc squared function. So L squared times sinc squared is uh, the L squareds and the numerator and denominator cancel. The intensity actually grows as sine squared in length, okay, which would probably be a more useful way to plot it. So the intensity at 2 omega plotted as a function of z along in the crystal will look like that. Uh, this peak value, we can just read off from the previous slide if we wanted to. It's all the terms before the sinc squared. Um, I don't really care about that. The distance from where you start generating the second harmonic to where you maximize out, we call that the coherence length, L, L sub c. We argued before that as long as that, uh, that term, let me go back, as long as this term, once this term changes, its phase changes by pi, we go from adding field to subtracting field. So we expect this length to correspond to this term changing by pi. So LC times delta K is pi. And you could also just evaluate where this expression is a maximum. Um, it's a maximum when sine squared equals 1. So sine equals 1 at pi over 2. So this argument has to be pi over 2. That means delta k L is pi. The same constraint. I'm um, pointing this out in particular because your book has it wrong. The book lists the coherence length as 2 pi over delta k. And to be fair, they never actually define what they mean by coherence length specifically. So it's possible that they have some sort of more loose criteria. But the common idea is that the coherence length is the distance over which the fields build up. And if you define it that way, then it's pi over delta k, not 2 pi over delta k. Okay, so when Okay, so, okay, so uh, let me draw in red. Uh, get green here. Let me draw in green what the intensity would look like if delta k is 0. It's, it's quadratic. Uh, if delta k is 0, this sinc squared is 1. It's just L squared. I shouldn't, it's never less than, I should draw it more accurately. So why does it look in sync squared though? I don't know if sync squared though where it came in way. Okay, so uh, why didn't I just write it as sine squared? Is that maybe the question? Why didn't I cancel these L's in the numerator and the denominator no, 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 and call no, it? No, but I mean, 
width of the non zero, it looks like sine squared. And width of the not equal to zero, it just looks like L squared. Yeah. So what's the point of the sine the sink? Okay, so let's say you define a crystal length. Okay, so L is defined, some value. And you then set out your crystal. You have your laser going through it, and you're going to try to phase match it by adjusting the angle. As you linearly vary the angle, delta k is going to pass through 0, assuming there's some phase matching condition. And assuming you pass through in a linear fashion, the intensity that you would see, as you vary delta k, this function is sinc squared. As you vary L, because there's an additional L over here, this function is either sine squared or L squared. But if it's delta K that you're varying, which is in the lab, that's experimentally what you can vary. You cut the crystal to a certain length. You don't get the, to vary that uh, in an experiment. But you do have to adjust delta K to, get, to achieve phase matching. Typically what you do is as you sweep through the angle, if you plot on a photodetector or on an oscilloscope connected to a photodetector, your output power this is what you see. Okay. You may be adjusting the angle, you may be adjusting the temperature. Um, and typically what happens is you're in a dark room with big heavy glasses on, safety glasses, and you're squinting and you're trying to see something, you're not seeing it because you need to be within a fraction of a degree of phase matching. And you may be working in the infrared, so you may not have anything to see until you get second harmonic generation. And then finally you see a you're very careful tweaking, you see a dot a spot, and you can adjust it and you can maximize it. You say, Finally, I got it. I do not want to touch my experiment. I do not want to get away from this point because it took me two days to get to this point. Um, but you may be on one of these side lobes. Right? So you actually have to scan through until you've confirmed where the maximum is. And sometimes you get very excited to see a couple microwatts here when there's you know, half a watt sitting over there. Um, yeah, so a lot of green light will blind you. I mean, it's right in the center of your eye's response, and we're not used to seeing. 100-watt bulbs put out a lot of visible light, and ver only a small fraction of that is at the center of our peak sensitivity. So um, I mention that because often you do this second harmonic generation with neodymium YAG lasers at 1064, and they're... Their second harmonic is at 532, right in the peak of the visible end. So um, even low conversion efficiencies can give you very bright output when you carefully tune your, your, your phase matching condition. Uh, so what is LC in a typical crystal? It is typically on the order of 100 microns or so. Um, that is to say, if you haven't phase matched. If you didn't want to take the time to phase match or you couldn't phase match because there was no phase matching condition available, then there'd be no optical advantage to having a crystal longer than that. You know, if you make the crystal some arbitrary length, you're going to have essentially, a, without knowing exactly what the coherence length is, you're going to have some random, uh, random amount of output between a max and zero. Um, you might want a thicker crystal for mechanical stability and such. Um, but then the longer it is, the more susceptible you are to like 
thermal expansion and things, uh, the thinner it is, any sort of differential strain of the crystal is going to produce a smaller variation. But if we made it 200 microns, then that would be bad, right? Yeah, that's right. Another thing is, uh, when we did the derivative of um, DE3, we assumed that what came in was zero. Yes, so when I was calculating, I guess, the integral here, I'm assuming. Yes. I think that was uh, buried in the notes. I might not have said it. Maybe it's not. Uh, assume the pump wave is not depleted. That means the amplitude of E1 and E2 aren't changing, which is an assumption. Right? As you start to convert all the power out of those fields, you're not going to have the same amount of power left. And then I guess I didn't explicitly said, assume that to solve for this ratio. I guess I didn't say <coughs> the end of a crystal. Yeah, I, I didn't explicitly say it, but yeah, I'm assuming that there's no input at the second harmonic. There's the there's there's the picture. There's no so no little blue photon there. What happens if we stick that in the mirror or in a cavity? Because then we will have E3 coming back, right? You've doubled the the, the crystal effective crystal length. Ah, uh, then we're gonna double. And if we made it 100 microns, then we would be screwed. Pretty much, unless unless, unless I know. Yes. Unless you did a cube. Unless you did a what? Yes. Then you could do that. Or if you had some dispersive optic that introduced another pi phase shift between the two frequencies, then when you return to the thing, you've they're now two pi out of phase. And instead of instead of this, you'd get this. Mm -hmm. So that's done. That's the next slide. Uh, it's called quasi-phase matching. If you can't phase match for the particular crystal, or uh, we'll see, maybe today, maybe, maybe next time, uh, that there's some times where it's more advantageous, rather than trying to find a phase matching angle or phase matching temperature, or, um, one of these parameters that needs to be tuned, you can engineer a material such that it's uh, got multiple crystal domains, and that the orientation of the crystal is flipped in each successive domain. If you flip the orientation, that's flipping the sign of the electro-optic tensor. Or that's equivalent to adding a pi phase shift relative to the beams. I mean, if we go back to the, our expression, Uh, for the electric field here, if we flip the sign of this, it's equivalent to adding, I guess up here, if we flip the sign of this, it's equivalent to adding a pi phase shift over here. Either one just adds a negative sign. So as soon as this has a negative sign, then you arrange for this to also have a negative sign. The negative signs cancel out. And you continue to get buildup of the field. And so, you know, ideally you'd have this L squared growth. Instead, you have it rolling off, and when it reaches its maximum, you flip the, the sign of the nonlinear coefficient, and then you get build up again. 
And then you flip back, right, and you get, get build up again. So you get this uh, net effect. It's, it's a linear, on average, uh, growth rather than a quadratic growth. Well, it, it, it's the most efficient if you can do it. But you may not be able to do it, or in doing it, you may constrain yourself to using a particular term in the electro-optic tensor that's not the largest. So it may be that by using quasi-phase matching, you can, ha you can utilize a larger electro-optic coefficient than you do with phase matching. Right, so the slope of that, or the, the scale of the vertical axis depends on the magnitude of the electro-optic coefficient, and that's not included in this. It's the D. So we're going to talk about all this very shortly. Well, if it's zero, if it's zero, the, the, I said that your, uh, the amount of power you get is proportional to L squared. The constant of proportionality has a D squared in it. So if D is small, okay. you, know, you may have relative growth as L squared, but the total amount of power may be not growing as fast as, as it could with quasi-phase matching. OK, so um, how do you build this? What type of materials can you build this out of? Uh, there's three that I know of that are commonly done. There's a uh, material called opgas. Orientation patterned gallium arsenide. It's used in the mid infrared. There is material called piplin, periodically polled lithium niobate. And there's a material called piplet, periodically polled lithium tantalate. Um, so periodic polling refers to the process of creating these alternating orientation domains. I'll describe then on the next slide how that's done. In short, you start with a single crystal, and then you do something to reverse the orientation in certain regions. The orientation pattern gallium arsenide, you literally grow, or either grow or you take several crystals that are very thin, and you stack them with alternating orientations. And that's how you, how you, how you build it. Um, so basically, one So in orientation, in orientation pattern gallium arsenide, it's like a 90 degree rotation of the crystal axes. And in the periodically polled materials, it's an inversion of the z-axis. And uh, there are, yeah, so that, and that is the optical axis, because lithium niobate and lithium tantalate are uniaxial crystals. So that means you kind of see a difference in the optical axis, right? It's true. But you can see a difference. We're not propagating along the optical axis. Uh, if you are not sensitive to the sign of the orientation, then your electro-optic coefficient for polarization in that direction would be zero. That's one of the symmetry properties that gives you a zero term in the electro-optic tensor or in the nonlinear optic tensor. Uh, if you remember, I think I, I think this was earlier in the notes, although maybe a little bit later. Uh, I'm a little confused because I'm teaching this class somewhere else and I've rearranged the notes in different orders for them. Um, the electro-optic coefficient is proportional to the nonlinear optic coefficient. Okay, so uh, how do you make one of these? Uh, let's say you want to make piplin, periodically pulled lithium niobate. 
you start with a wafer of lithium niobate. So it's grown single crystal boule, much like the exact same process of silicon growth, Chakralsky crystal growth. It's sliced into wafers, they're polished. You have usually like a four inch wafer of lithium niobate. It's a few hundred microns thick. And then you can do all the same sort of lithography that you do on silicon to make integrated circuits. So um, you lay down stripes of photoresist. So that means you cover the entire thing with photoresist, you expose certain regions by shining light through a mask, and then you develop that and wash away the exposed photoresist, and that leaves these little protective caps. You then put a conductive gel or some liquid that's conductive on top of this and a conducting plane below it, and apply a voltage to those basically capacitor electrodes. And what you've got then is regions where you have high electric field between the capacitors, and then regions where you have lower electric field because the distances is greater. And there's a threshold voltage at which you can get spontaneous inversion of the crystal domain. So you operate just above that voltage, and you get the crystal domains flipping in these regions. It's several kilovolts. Um, and when you're done, You've got this periodically pulled structure. Usually you would put like a, also pattern a waveguide onto this so that you can steer your light through the, the piplin, very focused for high intensity. Um, and this is a micrograph of piplin. So you have the voltage on when it's operating? No, when it ju that just, it just uh, one time. And then, uh, and then it freezes in. That, domain pattern freezes in. And I have some piplin, uh, which I brought in last time I taught this class. Was it the, this class or was it 268? Was anybody there when I did this? Brought in a wafer of piplin. It had, uh, you could see the, uh, the domains and you could see the waveguides that were coded in it. And I had a microscope so you could actually see them. And at the end of class, like, I picked up the microscope to carry it away, not realizing the piplin was still in it. And it fell and just broke into a million pieces. So I think I still have those pieces, but I don't know, it's less impressive than bringing in the original wafer. Um, so this was largely invented at, at Stanford in the research group that I was a student in. So a lot of my colleagues were improving this process and, and working on it. So. Did you get one of them to make a new one? So I can get, yes, or <laughs> I can get one of their scraps is what I do. Um, so typically what you do is you have a whole wafer and you're ending up using waveguides that are a micron thick. So you just pattern a whole bunch of these and you do things like alternate the period, or the, you can't, probably can't see it, but you have a slightly different pitch uh, for the period in one part of the wafer and another part. So you just generate lots of different parameters on the same wafer, and then you have various devices with slightly different parameters. Um, sometimes just so that you don't have to calculate exactly, you can just experimentally find the one that works the best. Other times, so you have the ability to sort of tune your system, uh, changing the wafer changes the, or changing the device you're using, you can change the coherence length, you can change the wavelengths at which you have quasi-phase matching. Okay, um, yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit and I think I'll leave that up. Um, let's do, 
a sort of simple design of Piplin, where we want to say do second harmonic generation of light from 1064 to 532 nanometers. So lambda naught is 1064 nanometers. The second harmonic is at 532 nanometers. And the question is, uh, what orientation should we have for our material? What polarization should our input light be? How should we, what should the domain length be? And so you'd have to look up for lithium niobate, its optical properties. And I have that, although I don't have it in the notes yet. So let me just open it. I neither have it in the notes or in my memory, so I can't uh, let's quote values. Yeah, See, so just find a reference. This is a company that sells lithium niobate. They've got all these different parameters listed for it. Um, you can look, okay, it's trigonal. You can look up the form of the electro-optic tensor. The nonlinear optic tensor will have the same form. Because of that, I didn't copy all those electro-optic tensors into the notes. And then you've got the nonlinear optic coefficients listed up there. Okay, so, sorry. Yeah, yeah. If it's not listed, it's zero. Uh, so, looking up the form of the electro-optic tensor. Let me start with that. The electro-optic tensor, remember, was a 3 by 6 tensor. And I don't recall what the form for trigonal is. Although, let me, I know at least, what, three of the values. Um, I know there's an R33. R. Yeah, you want to show it or rattle it off? Yeah, why don't I? Why don't I look at it? It's the first one. I've got it in terms of D.
that's 2, 2. And I realize that not all of these are given up there. Uh, well, they're either 0, small enough that they're not useful, or I've got the wrong form. Of the because there's well, there's but picometers, right? So how small do we have? <laughs> well, lithium niobate is chosen because those have large values. Really? Yeah. So okay, um so I we're not gonna have time to do this full uh full example today, but let me just set up for you uh, a few relationships. This nonlinear optic tensor is a six by three. Our electro-optic tensor was a 3 by 6. It's the transpose of this. So I guess I don't need to write in all the terms, but this would be like minus R22, R31, minus R11, R22, R31. So why are they the transpose? Remember the relationship for this electro-optic tensor? like that. It related a it related a vector to a matrix. Whereas this D tensor, D I J K, relates the polarization vector to a pair of electric field vectors. So because here we're going from uh, one vector to a 3x3 three three matrix, and here we're going from basically 3x3 three three to a, a vector. The form is, is swapped. And here this ij was contracted. And so here it's this jk that's going to be contracted. Right, the symmetry tells you you can flip the j and k and not have any change. That was what led us to be able to contract these. So when you see the Rij tensors, it's the first term that goes from 1 to 6. The electro-optic tensors, it's the second term that goes from 1 to 6. Um, so if we know we can invert the direction of the optical axis, and that's along z, um, we know we should be propagating an x or y. And what we want is we, we want our polarization, the nonlinear polarization, to be as large as possible, the magnitude of it. And that will come when our electro-optic tensor is the largest, when the term is the largest one, and then we have the appropriate polarizations for that term. So which is the largest term here? D33. Right. If you want to use the D33 term, D33 is what in expanded notation? D33 uh, yeah. oh. <laughs> D333. So, so the 3 gets expanded into 33. Okay, so we want to have D333. So what, should, what will be the polarization of our, uh, nonlinear, our nonlinear polarization in the material? What direction is it? Z. Z, right. 
How about our driving fields? They're, they should both be in Z as well. So that tells you right away that you want your input. See, this is your piplin. You want your input wave polarized along Z. And your output will also be polarized along Z. It well, there is no phase matching here. That's the point. We're doing this quasi-phase matching. So oh, there's no. Yeah. So you're right. It's it, it. This form of phase matching is never possible. You could never do phase matching using this large value d33. So it's a large value, but it's useless unless you can do this quasi-phase matching. Likewise, you could do phase matching. Let's say you have type one phase matching. Let's say you can do that. Uh, lithium nibate's a negative uniaxial crystal, so that would be the first. If you can do phase matching, that's the one, the very first one you could do. What would your polarization of your two input fields be? Wait, which one is one. They're both the same, and they'd both be ordinary. Um, right. So if you notice, the x and y columns are. There's a symmetry between the x and y columns uh, because x and y in a uniaxial crystal are identical. Um, yeah, I'm not seeing the same. It's, uh, should be a 3M, not a 3 Okay. Wait, I've got the wrong, the wrong form of the tensor. Oh. I didn't look up the specific form. I was trying to guess based on knowing that there had to be this term. Um, anyway, let's use this tensor. I've written it. Um, if you have type 1 phase matching, you have ordinary EJ and EK are both ordinary. Let's call that X. And since X, Y, it's degenerate. Okay, so if you have, so this is for quasi phase matching. For type 1, we would have E1, E1. And our output polarization would be extraordinary. That would be long Z. That would be P3. So which element of the tensor would we need? D31. D, yeah, D311, which contracts to D31. And so we look, and we say, OK, well, actually, that might be possible. It's got a lower. value for the electro-optic coefficient. So depending on our crystal length, uh, we may or may not do better by having actual phase matching or quasi-phase matching. Um, if we tried to do type 2 phase matching, what would change is the polarization of one of these, E1, E3. We would have D313. 13 contracts to uh, 5. D15. We can look up. It's the same number here. Okay. Um, but you can imagine 
trying to find a type of phase matching, then that, that there is no nonlinear optic coefficient that would allow that interaction to take place. Okay, so. Um, so you can do type 1 and type 2. Yep. I say you can do type 1 and type 2. We'd still have to check whether the indices allow that phase matching. Last time we talked about, OK, you need the extraordinary index at 2 omega to be less than the ordinary index at 1 omega. We haven't checked that. Type 2 would be type D3, 5, right? D3, 5, yeah. Why did I write 1, 5? Uh, 3, 5. Three five doesn't exist up there. So even if you can do phase matching for type two, you have uh, okay, you have phase matched waves, but there's no interaction between them, so there's no conversion that goes on. Okay, so next time we'll we'll pick up on this example, and we'll continue to say how do you, how would you design this lithium nibate? What would your your domain be? Uh, domain length be? What would the geometry be that you use it? Well, wait, I'm if we can't phase match, 